0: Listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to slash gold. All right, folks, I have uh, New York Times up, nytimes.com. This is from the archive, and this is titled, Henry A. Murray is Dead at 95, Developer of Personality Theory. And this is by Glenn Fowler, written on June 24th, 1988. And it says here, Henry A. Murray, a psychologist and educator who was a pioneer in the development of personality theory, died of pneumonia yesterday at his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was 95 years old. Dr. Murray, who taught at University Harvard, uh, sorry, at Harvard University for almost 40 years until his retirement in 1962, was among other things one of the early American-born psychoanalysts, a selector of agents for the Office of Strategic Services in World War II, a scholar, and a leading authority on the life and works of Herman Melville. Quote, he was undoubtedly one of the outstanding psychologists of his time, end quote. Dr. Robert Holt, professor of psychology at New York University and a student of Dr. Murray more than 40 years ago, said yesterday, quote, he was one of a small number of leading theorists in the study of personality, and his work was known worldwide to psychologist and psychiatrist. His contributions influenced several generations of professors and clinical practitioners, end quote. Co-inventor of test, it says. I, I don't know, that looks like it was something's left out there. It says Dr. Murray was perhaps best known as a co-inventor of the thematic apperception test, or TAT T A T. We just mentioned that in the last segment, a widely used tool in psychiatric diagnosis and in academic research. When the late Dr. Morton Prince founded the Harvard Psychological Clinic in 1926 as the first institution of its kind, specializing in the treatment of psychoneurosis, as well as in research, he asked Dr. Murray to help set it up. Two years later, Dr. Murray became its director, a post he held until 1930. 19- 37 now you would think because by this time uh, a lot of stuff had come out having to do with some of the experiments that he was running now remember he dies in 88 kaczynski comes to the public eye in 95 was the manifesto 96 when it was kaczynski but some of the work that murray was involved with had come out prior to this Um, would you not be discredited as a monster if people knew that you were running these unethical experiments on minors at Harvard university, like messing with their minds? I mean, would, would people not say, hold on a second, forget the rest of his work. Look what he did over here. Maybe we just don't realize what he was doing with the rest of his work, but no, no, he's a good guy and he should be looked at as a scholar, even though this guy is, uh, just like the rest of them, folks, a Dr. Jekyll. They're all Dr. Jekylls, you know, running around disguised as these highfalutin technocrats, scientists. And then they put on their monster suit in their laboratory and they torture people. goes on to say, Henry Alexander Murray was born to a wealthy family in a townhouse on the site of what is now Rockefeller Center. Well, how appropriate is that, ladies and gentlemen? He grew up in a house that's now... The Rockefeller Center. Well, his whole life was centered around the Rockefellers. All right. He was working at Harvard, funded by the Rockefellers, working on programs funded by the Rockefellers, working for the OSS and the CIA in joint cooperation with the Rockefellers. It goes on to say in an autobiographical essay many years later, he recalled that he was not a very good student, even something of a playboy. At Harvard, which he attended after graduating from Groton, he studied history, attended one lecture in psychology, and walked out when he found the subject boring. Nevertheless, he earned a Phi Beta Kappa key and embarked on an eclectic postgraduate career. He received his medical degree from Columbia University in 1919. Oh, Columbia University, 1919. That was the very beginning of the technocracy movement, folks. And a year later took a Master of Arts moving on to Cambridge in England for a Ph.D. His medical career embraced several disciplines. He was a physician, a surgeon, a biochemical researcher, an embryologist, and an anatomist before settling on psychology as the field he would devote most of his energies to for the rest of his life. He joins Harvard faculty folks in the 1920s and 1930s when psychoanalysis was not widely accepted in this country. He was one of a small group who fought detractors to establish it as a worthwhile branch of science. He had been drawn into psychoanalysis while doing research in biochemistry at the Rockefeller Institute in New York before he joined the Harvard Harvard faculty in 1926, right? So there you go. No one was looking into psychoanalysis. Well, boom, there you go. He starts doing it under the Rockefeller Institute. Carl Jung of Switzerland, who was preeminent in the field, analyzed Dr. Murray and profoundly influenced him. He later underwent analysis with the Hungarian-born Franz Alexander and was one of the first Americans to practice psychoanalysis. He was a founder of the Boston Psychoanalysis analytic society as time went on murray became enmeshed in the study of personality the sum of an individual's emotional trends interest behavioral tendencies and other characteristics particularly as they pertain to his relationship with others in a series of articles essays and monographs he defined many outlines of personality theory His most widely known work, quote, Explorations in Personality, was completed in 1938. Quote, not since William James has there been an American psychologist so versatile, nor has anyone else written with equal verve and boldness, end quote. Joseph Adelson, professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, wrote in 1981 appraisal of his work. Dr. Murray was a wordsmith of some accomplishment and was fond of creating new words. He first used the word quote personology, end quote, to describe the study of personality and quote nurturance, end quote, to sum up the process of nurturing in human relations. From his youth he developed a passion for the literary work of Herman Melville, and he became a student of the author's life. In 1925, Dr. Murray gave Sigmund Freud a copy of, quote, Moby Dick, end quote, and reported that the father of psychoanalysis promptly proclaimed that, quote, the whale was a father figure, end quote. After his retirement in 1962, Murray continued to travel and lecture in this country and abroad, and he intensified his study of Melville. At his death, he was preparing a book tentatively titled, quote, A Melville Mosaic, Morsels from the Unpublished Biography, end quote. In 1943, Murray was recruited by the Office of Strategic Services, forerunner of the Central Intelligence Agency, to apply his knowledge of psychology in selecting undercover agents. He was given a commission in the Army's Medical Corps in 1933, achieving the rank of lieutenant colonel and being decorated with the Legion of Merit. He returned to Harvard after the war as a lecturer, and in 1948, when he was 55 years old and world famous, he was granted tenure at the university. He became a full professor in 1950. Dr. Murray is survived by his second wife, Dr. Caroline Nina Murray, a daughter by his previous marriage, Josephine Lee Murray of Topsfield, Massachusetts, four stepdaughters, Caroline Januver of Ridgewood, New Jersey, and McLaughlin of Medfield, Mass. I'm reading these in case you want to reach out to these people. Maud Fish of Belmont, Mass., and Quita Palmer of Fairfield, Iowa a stepson, Alexander Davis of Berlin, Mass., and 10 step-grandchildren. So that's the uh, death of Henry Murray, folks. So now what we're going to do, and I'm not going to turn this into a show on the Office of Strategic Services, but I'm going to give you a basic background here for those of you uh, who have not, let's say, studied the CIA over the years The Office of Strategic Services, OSS, and and I'm just looking at this over at Wikipedia, folks. Keep it simple. So OSS was the intelligence agency of the United States during World War II. The OSS was formed as an agency of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff to coordinate espionage activities behind enemy lines for all branches of the United States Armed Forces. Other OSS functions included the use of propaganda, subversion, and post-war planning all right so post-war planning we'll talk a little bit about that folks we were already doing post-war planning when we went into the war all right i actually let me just show you this because uh i'll pull this up now because i don't think i'm going to fit it in later here this is just a piece i got out of a book it's called the cia the ford foundation and the demise of the ccff And uh, I'll just read it to you. It says, uh, this is from Chapter 8 of this book. The Financial History of the Congress for Cultural Freedom Reveals a Peculiar Relationship with Both American uh, Philanthropy and the CIA continuing until its demise and conversion into the International Association for Cultural Freedom, the IACF, in 1967. Before analyzing the CCF's links with U.S. government agencies and with the Ford Foundation, however, a number of background factors must be introduced so as to make the subsequent account of CCF finances more comprehensible. The previous chapter has shown that the world of big, private, philanthropic foundations, especially when it came to international affairs, was not sealed off from official American diplomacy and its objectives. All right, so what it's telling you is the philanthropic organizations were working in cooperation with the state indeed in the early post-war period u.s government agencies had been more deeply involved than ever before in supporting an array of associations in europe and in other parts of the world that were either openly fighting the cold war against the soviet union or encouraging an economic and political reconstruction for which american institutions and practices were offered as a model The Marshall Plan is just one example of support for the economic modernization of Western Europe. It not only provided deliveries in food and raw materials and paved the way for the importation of American technologies and investments, but also paid for visits of European businessmen and trade unionists to study large-scale production and Fordism in Ohio or Michigan. We also saw in the preceding chapter how after the gradual withdrawal of American government agencies, private foundations continued these efforts. How they helped Western Europe's industries to reorganize and adapt their factories and management styles to the peculiarities of an emergent mass production and mass consumption society along American lines. To be sure, these Americanizing trends cause many agonies and a good deal of cultural resistance among European businessmen. Thus, in turn, must be related to the previously mentioned intellectual debates on both sides of the Atlantic about the blessings and dangers of American, quote, mass culture, end quote. And uh, I just wanted to bring that up for you because it's part of some other research I'm doing connected to what Wide Awake Jim is working on you know the united states has been spreading industrial technological technocracy uh the whole time folks the whole time so as we're going into world war ii here right and then right after world war ii we know the cold war starts so we're pushing back the nazi fascists we split up Um, the land there in Germany, with England, with France, with uh, Russia, and then we immediately start this Cold War operation with Russia, and then we're gearing up now to drive all this uh, American technology in. So we're pushing back the fascists, pushing back the communists, coming in with the American solution. So we're not freeing anyone, folks. We're not freeing people. I'm not saying fascism or communism was good. I'm just saying you're not freeing people, And then letting them do what they want to do, you're coming in and going, here's the McDonald's, here's the Nike t-shirt, here's the Disney Channel backpack, welcome to America now. So we come in and we conquer as well. And I know folks don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear that. You want to wave the American flag on your porch. I understand. I used to be one of those people. And I'm not saying the United States is bad. I'm saying all government is bad. The world government is bad, but I'm telling you, we already live under one world government. It's already here, folks. Just look at the central bank system. It's in every country. The bankers at the top call it the one currency system, the world currency system. We're already there, folks. It's not coming. It's here. They're just tightening the noose. They're just shortening the leash each and every day as they let you continue to roam around inside of the free-range prison where you believe, you believe that you have freedom. But it's all an illusion inside of the matrix. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. you listening to the Dust and Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv. Slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is Dustin Gold of the Dustin Gold Standard Podcast right here on pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, I think what we're going to do, because I want to get into Henry Murray's affiliation with this uh, World Federalist Society, basically this one world government system. So, again, he's a supporter of that, folks. And now you know right here that the OSS that he was part of, okay, was working on propaganda subversion and post-war planning. And I just read to you now the connection with Ford Foundation. Also, that book gets into the Rockefellers and uh, all of these non-governmental organizations, these NGOs that go in on behalf of the government to push American corporatism and technocracy into these countries we conquer. As we know, the International Monetary Fund serves that purpose as well. They went in, they dumped a lot of money around Europe after World War II. They said, oh, we'll help rebuild you. All part of the same system, folks. It's all part of the same system. And it grows out of this uh, world federalist society, which we're going to get to. But I- I'll walk you through this assessment of men. Because to me, Henry Murray is instrumental in a couple major things here in his life. Forget what the, uh, what the eulogy says, right? Um, Murray is instrumental in... MK Ultra Mind Control. That's what he's doing with his uh, personality stuff. Number two, assessment of men, which becomes the foundation, the protocol for selecting managers inside of corporations. Uh, also, they do a lot of mind-bending and mind-breaking. Um, so you have that, and then you have this World Federalist Society. So this one world government stuff that he was into. I mean, that's the legacy of dr. Henry Murray, all right again, assessment amend m k ultra World Federalist Society, and basically he 's an agent of the Rockefeller his entire career uh let's just finish on wikipedia here it says the oss that's office of strategic services was dissolved a month after the end of the war intelligence tasks were shortly later resumed and carried over by its successors the department of state's bureau of intelligence and research that's the inr and the independent central intelligence agency which is formed in 1947 it says on december 14 2016 the organization was collectively honored with a congressional gold medal Uh, That wasn't a medal for me, folks. That's a congressional gold medal, not a Dustin gold medal. It goes on to say here uh, the origin, and we'll just talk a little bit about this because some of this information is important. It says, prior to the formation of the OSS, the various departments of the executive branch, including the state, treasury, navy, and war departments, conducted American intelligence activities on an ad hoc basis with no overall direction, coordination, or control. Really? The Treasury was doing that, huh? Goes on to say the U.S. Army and U.S. Navy had separate code-breaking departments, Signal Intelligence Service and OP-20G. Goes on to say the FBI was responsible for domestic security and anti-espionage operations. I'm not going to read all of this. It says President Franklin Roosevelt, and he, he's very important. As you know, he's come up in discussions on technocracy here. His brain trust, very instrumental in technocracy, uh, being brought to fruition through the New Deal with the Social Security number and tagging every individual with that number here in the United States. Uh, also, as I mentioned earlier, Rexford Guy Tugwell Bigwig with the Brain Trust was actively involved with helping develop the world constitution. So it says, FDR was concerned about American intelligence deficiencies. On the suggestion of William Stevenson, the senior British intelligence officer in the Western Hemisphere, Roosevelt requested that William J. Donovan, that's Wild Bill, draft a plan foreign intelligence service based on the british security intelligence service mi6 and special operations executive soe donovan envisioned a single agency responsible for foreign intelligence and special operations involving commandos disinformation partisan and guerrilla activities well everything they run against us here in the united states goes on to say, after submitting his work, quote, memorandum of establishment of service of strategic information, end quote, he was appointed, quote, coordinator of information, end quote, on July 11, 1941, heading the new organization known as the Office of the Coordinator of Information. Uh, and so we're, we're going to skip down uh, past the history here. And we're just going to look at some of the activities of the OSS, all right? So it says, OSS proved especially useful in providing a worldwide overview of the German war effort, its strengths, and weaknesses. In direct operations, it was successful in supporting Operation Torch in French North Africa in 1942, where it identified pro-allied potential supporters and located landing sites. OSS operations in neutral countries, especially Stockholm, Sweden, provided in-depth information on German advanced technology. I know, we were after all that technology, folks. All right, so I'm going to come back uh, to this uh, because this is sort of just official story on what the OSS was doing. But I want to show you this assessment of men, okay? This is this 565-page document. That was created by Henry Murray. All right. And uh, I started actually going through this. It's assessment of men, selection of personnel for the Office of Strategic Services. And this is the document that I told you has become the protocol for selecting uh, managers inside of corporations. Uh, They get into mind breaking, uh, manipulating these guys, propagandizing them tearing them down, building them back up. It's all about restructuring the mind, blowing up the mind, and then rebuilding it in your image. It goes hand in hand with uh, MK Ultra, which we've covered here at the Dust and Gold Standard. What I'm going to do is I found this article here at uh, sofrep.com. And this does a pretty good job of summing it up. And this is from someone written by uh, Steve Balistrieri. On November 5th, 2019, the article is how CIA predecessors were assessed and selected. This guy is a fan. He's like a special operator, uh, Navy SEAL, I believe. Let me just double check here. Down at the bottom, it has his bio. It says, Steve is a SOFREP senior editor. He has served as a special forces NCO and warrant officer before injuries forced his early separation. Okay, so this guy is actually... Um. He likes this thing, but it's good. He's got some good information in here, so we're going to use this because I'm not going to go through 565 pages with you on this show. I think it's important that you understand Henry Murray's involvement in this document that becomes the protocol to select managers and corporations, and you understand the gist of it uh, because it, it really will explain to you how this whole system actually works. It says back in World War II, The United States was woefully prepared to enter the war, especially in the field of intelligence operations, where they didn't have a national professional intelligence service, but that would change very quickly. After President Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointed General William Wild Bill Donovan to help uh, to head up the fledgling Office of Strategic Services, he quickly used his British contacts with getting the Americans the training and experience they would need in the coming months. After OSS grew from their original COI, Coordinator of Information, roots, the United States copied the British program of psychological psychiatric assessment, similar to that in the English War Office selection boards. Uh, OSS was searching for what personal makeup would be assessing the perfect applicant for paramilitary operations. That's guerrilla warfare, sabotage, assassination intelligence operations, that would be espionage, propaganda operations and select skills such as radio operators. They were starting from scratch. Um, Hold on one second, folks. The ads on this thing bounce around, and so it makes it very difficult to read. They were starting from scratch. No one really knew what would make a perfect candidate for any of those. So Donovan and his staff assembled a team of psychologists headed up by Dr. Henry Murray, a Harvard-trained psychologist who was a pioneer in personality assessment. He would head up the assessment and selection committee. They would screen nearly 5,400 candidates to weed out the unfit. And it's bouncing around again, ladies and gentlemen. He would lead up the assessment and selection committee. They would screen nearly 5,400 candidates to weed out the unfit for the dangerous job of being involved in the United States' first foray into the intelligence and special operations business. The candidates, military and civilian men and women, would be brought to Station S, schools and training, at the prior Willard Estate in Fairfax, Virginia. The initial problem that arose was that there were no job descriptions for the candidates, and therefore the psychologist had a difficult time in assessing candidates because they didn't know what they were actually assessing for. But what the training school cadre of doctors came up with is a basic tool that is still used today, not only in selection and assessment for special operations forces, but in the civilian world in assessing managers. Okay, this is important, and I found this in uh, several articles and documents so we can confirm that is true. Now, in the beginning of Assessment for Men in the actual document itself, it goes through all the mad scientists that they brought in to actually work on this. So the military reaches out to the mad scientists to come in and run these programs to figure out who's going to be the best intelligence officer, who lies the best, who can withstand torture. Now, I mean, this is everything we're building. Now, some people could say, well, this was important. We were building an intelligence unit. Folks, we were assessing soldiers that were going to go out there, guys that were going to follow orders, guys that had no uh, morals, uh, no foundation. Or they did, and these doctors were going to figure out how to manipulate that and use it. We were building a team of people that were going to go out there and help build this worldwide technocracy. I'm telling you, that's what this is all about, folks. It was never about protecting the Constitution, protecting the United States, whatever that even means to you, or protecting the people here in the United States. This was all created as an army, as a force For the Rockefellers, for the bankers to go out into these countries and uh, spread the World Bank central banking system, to spread industrial technological technocracy. That's what this has always been about. It's always been about. That's the sad part, because I'm piercing your worldview. It pierces my worldview. It hurts to understand this. It really does. It's really difficult. To accept that the entire history that you know, that you've been taught, that you believe in, is just an illusion. It never actually existed. It never existed. We are just ants living inside this ant farm here that we call the United States. And and sadly, all of these things we thought we had, they're just pieces of nostalgia that were created. They're just propaganda narratives that were put inside of our head what does that mean i don't know i mean i don't know it's scary it sucks but i would rather know the truth i don't want to live a giant lie ladies and gentlemen i'll be right back this is dust to Gold with the dust and gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold more listening to the dust and gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold